0: Colossians chapter 3 verse number 10. We're kind of switching gears this evening. Uh, the past several weeks we've spoken on the devil's dirty delights. I had a, a parent come up to me of a young child here recently and said uh, throughout the week they their kid came up to them with great anticipation saying, I think Brother Andrew's going to preach on the devil's dirty d- delights to this week. And And uh, I'm not sure if they actually knew what we were talking about, but that's an interesting sermon titled to a small child, The Devil's Dirty Delights. Um, This week, however, we switch gears almost entirely. Instead of The Devil's Dirty Delights, it is the Savior's sweet substitutes. As I mentioned before, we are to put off those old things. And those old things we'll cover tonight, but we'll we'll go back over them very quickly in verse number 8. Uh, We are to put those off, but then tonight we'll study what we are to put on, the substitute that Christ offers now to the new man, the redeemed man, the person who knows Christ as their Savior. These are the substitutes of what Satan has to offer. This is what Christ has to offer. So we'll begin reading in verse number 7, just for context, as we uh, look at what we read last week and the last several weeks, and then we'll move right into this week's sermon. The Bible says in verse 7, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these. And these are the things that we are to take off as a change of garments. We are to take off and put off anger. Anger which leads to wrath. Which leads to malice. Blasphemy. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed... Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that you'd be with us. Lord, I pray that you would allow me the liberty to stand up and boldly proclaim your truth. Lord, I pray that you'd give me clear direction. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead me throughout this sermon. And Lord, anything that would not be profitable be said I pray that you would withhold my tongue from saying it. Lord, anything that maybe I have not already thought of or anything that maybe I could recall from Scripture, Lord, that I have not already done so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, spark those thoughts in my mind as I deliver this sermon tonight. Lord, I yield my life, myself, my person, and my abilities to you this evening in the pulpit so that you might lead me. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would feel the same way as they're seated in the audience. May they yield their hearts to uh, adapt to what the Word of God has to say tonight. And if their life doesn't adequately agree with what God's Word asks of them, Lord, I pray they'd be willing to uh, change that thing in their life tonight. Lord, I pray with all my heart that you do this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but so far, all the things that we've talked about have to do with our horizontal relationship. Right, We are not to hate one another, we are not to uh, uh, be wrathful towards one another, we are not to be malicious towards one another, we are not to lie one to another. And all of this text deals with our horizontal relationships. And did you know, as a matter of fact, you cannot be right vertically unless you are right horizontally? And so and I also believe that that flips as well you cannot be right vert, uh, you cannot be right uh, horizontally unless you 're right vertically right if you 're not right with your brother you can 't be right with God but if you 're not right with God, chances are you won't be right with your brother so in tonight 's passage we, we we looked recently about what not to do. We're not to lie to one another. We're not to uh, uh, be hateful or spiteful or vindictive. We're not to be wrathful. So what are we to put on? I want to draw yourself before we launch into uh, uh, what we are to do as Christians. I want to give you the reason why we do it. You know, doing something without a reason is lunacy. It's folly. If you have not properly planned out a good enough reason or a motivation to do something chances are you won't follow through with what you're doing. So I want to draw your attention to one verse tonight, and the Bible says in verse number 10, this is the reason we do these things. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in, what's the next word there? Knowledge. Knowledge, After the image of him that created him. Did you know that knowledge and a lie can be destructive? Yes. I remember when I was in the elementary school, they taught me, they, they brought out a big a sheet of paper with a tongue printed on it. And that tongue was divided up into four quadrants. And we were to take sugar and we were to place it on all four quadrants of our tongue. And we were to say which part of our tongue most tasted the sweetness. We do the same thing with a a lemon to uh, do sour and and four other flavors that your tongue is supposed to divide up and only those parts of your tongue can uh, uh, taste those things. Well, did you know that's not at all true? And as I sat there as a little kid, I, I was placing all the things in my tongue and all my friends around me were like, yeah, 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 I can taste the sugar on the back right hemisphere of my tongue. And I'm like... It tastes like sugar no matter where I put it. And so I, I was so confused. Did you know that's a lie? Did you know that it's a lie that the Great Wall of China can be seen from outer space? Did you know it's a lie that Napoleon was a short man? In fact, he was five foot seven, which is actually above average height for a man of uh, his era. Huh? See, lies and, and belief in those lies can be destructive. Did you know that the time that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, there was not a single person on the face of the planet that believed the earth was uh, flat? In fact, Aristotle in the 4th century pretty much concurred and concluded and almost every scientist and philosopher of the day agreed with him that the earth was round way back then. And so we've been taught certain things, and some of these things are, are uh, I don't know, myths. Some of these things aren't necessarily truth, but tr- belief in lies can be destructive. Now, frankly, I don't think it has ever harmed you that you believed that the earth was flat, or everybody believed the earth was flat when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but there are other lies that can be destructive. I recall once uh, my dad, he taught me that the red gas can means it's what, men? Gasoline. The big gas can means it's what? Not mixed. And the small little half-gallon tanks, what does that mean? It is mixed. And so this is a universal rule. You don't put uh, other things in the big red gas cans because that is strictly gas. Uh, You don't put other things in the small gas cans so that when you go to fill your weed eater, you uh, you have oil in there. It's mixed and you don't hurt your weed eater. Well, I remember one day I saw a big red gas can and I had just ran out of gasoline in the four-wheeler. I go over to the gas can there and I say, well, it's big check one. Well, it's red, check two. And my four-wheeler needs gas, so I will utilize this gasoline, which I have no doubt is gasoline, and put in my four-wheeler. Well, I put that gasoline in my four-wheeler and, oh, I don't know, about 10 minutes later after Grand Prixing and running around on this four-wheeler, it started to smoke incessantly. I'm talking about black black smoke and the four-wheeler was not running good anymore I remember my dad came over to me he said where'd you get that gas and I said well it's the big red gas can it doesn't matter where I got it because it's a big red gas can he said no where did you get it and I said oh it's under the dog box there in the in the uh, uh uh barn and he said Andrew that's diesel for the tractor Well, that's your fault, Jack. No, 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 I, I didn't say that, I didn't say that. But you see, belief in a lie can at times be destructive. But did you know belief in the truth can be transformative? Amen. Truth is unchanging, yet sometimes truth is not discovered to some people, right? I mean, truth never changes. If it did change, at one time it would have been a lie. Truth is unchanging. That's why God's Word is Unchanging. It doesn't need to change. It is perfect in every way. This book does not have any errors, any faults, any flaws. It is the perfect Word of God. And if we need constant revision of it, at one time there was a lie in it. You understand? It was not truth all the way. And I believe that the book I have in my hand is God's truth for me tonight. So that being the case, if truth and the discovery of truth can be transformative, why does the Bible here say uh, in verse 10, and having put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. See, knowledge is the discovery of truth. Right? Knowledge is knowing something that was not previously known and learning it and applying that to your life. So, don't overlook this. Our new acquisition of knowledge is the reason that we are to put off those old things and put on these new things. What knowledge is it talking about? What transformative truth could so impact our life that we would look like the Bible says, all things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Old creature, new creature. What transformative truths are they? Well, look here in verse number uh, 10. I want to share them with you. Uh, Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. Uh, The first uh, revelation of this transformative truth is that we found our Creator. You see, when we were lost, we did not recognize God as our Creator. We did not know Him as such. Many of us had read Genesis 1, but in our heart, our faith did not see or recognize Him as King of kings, Lord of lords, and the God who stepped out in Colossians chapter 1, and Genesis chapter 1, and John chapter 1, that spoke everything into existence. And when we were lost and in our sin, we did not recognize Him as Creator God. Well, we were created in His image, we know that. We were given a a, a mind, an intellect, an emotion, and will, and that is the way we look like God. His image is those things. We were given a, a, a body, a soul, and a spirit. We were created in the image of God, but what happened, that image was marred in the Garden of Eden. Adam took the fruit, whether Eve took it or not is irrelevant, Adam did take it. And even if Adam had not taken it, I probably would have been the next guy to screw up, to be honest with you, because that's me. Uh, But we would have sinned as well. And we did sin as well. Not only are we guilty by root, we're guilty by the fruit of our lives. And so we were created in the image of God, and sin marred that image. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this, we were formed in God's image, deformed by sin, and transformed into God's image through Jesus Christ. We were created in God's image, and we now, as a saved child of God, recognize Him as creator God. I have no time for the Christian who says, Well, I believe that you know maybe the process of evolution is a legitimate deal that Christian, I don't understand how they could be a Christian because they're calling God a liar and there is no lies in God. He is no falsehood in God. So I I have no time for that person. If you're a Christian, you know what I believe? I believe you believe this book. And the Christian believes that God is their creator. Secondly, uh, not only are we created by God and now we have discovered that, secondly, we are centered in Him. We are centered in Him. In him, verse number 11. Not only were we created by him, we are now centered in him. The Bible says, uh, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I like the way the book puts it earlier in the chapter. It says, When Christ Who is our life? And that's found there in verse number 4. Christ is our life. And the moment you recognize Him as Savior, you must recognize Him as Lord. That's the thing, is a lot of people recognize His saving abilities, but they don't recognize Him as their King. That's why their lives look no different post-salvation. You must recognize Him as Lord, and the Lord of your life has the... uh, uh, of the privilege to direct your life. It must submit and conform to His will. And that is recognize Him as not only Creator, but it is also saying, Jesus, my life is yours. Whatever you want, whatever you ask of me, Lord, I will do it because my life is centered in yours. That's truly a biblical concept of a disciple. Teacher, wherever you want me. Teacher, whatever you ask of me. Teacher, I will follow your teachings even to the grave. That's the biblical concept of a disciple. We are are centered uh, regardless of, notice this, uh, verse number 11, our citizenship. The Bible says where there is neither Greek nor Jew. Now in the Old Testament, I would have to admit to you, the Bible makes very plain that God chose Israel to be His people. It started all the way back at Abraham, but God made Abraham a promise that they would be His seed forever and ever. That promise kept going through His sons and His sons all the way to the establishment of King David's throne. But in the Old Testament, God loved the Jew. And I'll have you know that there were people that did become Jews in the Old Testament. There were people who, although their birth, Location may not have been with the Jews, there a new religion became the Jews. There were strangers in the camp. And I learned this week that actually the Bible says that people that were not Jews became Jews in the Old Testament. And that's tremendous. But I would have to say that God certainly showed favoritism on the Jews in the Old Testament. I believe He still shows favoritism to them today. They are still His chosen people. God loves them. And when America decides to stand against the Jew, we as Christians must stand for the Jew. That's in the Bible. And if we want blessing on our land, I think it would be wise for our government to continue to stand with the Jew. But regardless of our citizenship in Christ, where you were born doesn't matter. Whether or not you're a son of Abraham, or whether you're a a son of Gene Wolfenbarger, which is pretty low on the totem pole in most places I go, but whether you're the son of nobody, the son of an ex-convict, the son of a a, 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 a whoever, your citizenship just doesn't matter when you're put into Christ. Because the moment you're in Christ... He is your Savior. The moment you're in Christ, God is your Father. You're adopted by Him, and He loves you. Not because of where you were born and what you have to bring to the table. He loves you because He loved you before you ever made a mistake. That's good. No, we're centered in Him regardless of our citizenship. We're centered in Him regardless of our credentials. Look here, the Bible says, Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision. Now we know because of Old Testament study that the Bible instructed that a Jew on the eighth day was to be circumcised. They did it at that time so that that child would not remember the pain nor feel the pain as much as maybe a grown man. But there is biblical record of men submitting their lives so much to Jesus Christ that they went under a surgical procedure to identify with the Lord. You know how much trouble we have to get them them in the baptistry nowadays? And yet there were people who would say, I will take the pain, I will take the struggle, I'm a follower of Christ, and if that's what He asks of me, then I will go under the blade. But did you know tonight, that as we stand and study God's Word, circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth nothing. You cannot bring anything to the table to make God favor you, you understand. God loves you regardless of you and in spite of you, His love is wonderful. Oh, don't ever think that God got a good one when He got you. Chances are God got a dirty, rotten sinner when He got you. No, our our citizenship matters nothing. We are centered in Christ regardless of that. Our credentials matter nothing. Thirdly, our culture matters nothing. Look here in verse number 11. Uh, Neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian. You see, to the Greek, uh, uh, everyone was considered a barbarian. It's very similar to how the Jew would record everybody as a Gentile who is not a Jew. And a Scythian just so happened to be the lowest form of barbarian. They thought everybody was that way. And basically what they were saying was, everyone is not as good as us. And I'm proud to say that I am an American this evening. I'm proud to say despite her flaws and imperfections, America is still the greatest country in this world. But did you know God loves the tribesmen in the depths of the heart of the African jungle as much as He loves the cleanest preacher in America? Uh, Our culture doesn't... Just because we learned how to tie a necktie at a young age when we graduated from clip-ons does not make us any better in God's eyes. When you're placed in Christ... Everything that you are becomes irrelevant. And everything that Christ is is magnified in your life. Not only our citizenship, credentials, culture uh, makes us, uh, regardless of those things, we're found in the center of Christ. Fourthly, our circumstances don't help us get any favor in this case. The Bible says this, Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, uh, Scythian, bond nor You see, back in Paul's day, as he was writing, uh, there were a lot of men who were bond slaves. They were under contract to serve a man, and legally, that man owned them. Those guys, some of them had it quite tough. Some of them had good masters, but regardless, I don't think I would much enjoy being a bond slave. And yet there were other men who were free men, whether they had at one time been a bondservant and became free or whether they were just born into freedom. uh, Paul here is saying, regardless of whether you're the lowest on the totem pole or whether you're the highest of the high. Christ is all and in all. When you're in Christ, it doesn't matter what money you make. It doesn't matter what your 401k looks like. It doesn't matter your level of education. I get such a big crack up when people ask me my level of education. Bachelor's degree, associate's degree. Who cares? You don't even care that much. You see, Christ does not care the circumstances that you are in. Christ loved you regardless of them, and He loves you still today, and we are centered in Christ despite us. We have a wonderful, merciful Savior. Not only are the the first transformative truth as we are created in Him, the second transformative truth as we are now centered in Him, thirdly, we are charged by Him. See, as all of this has come to light, The fact that we have a creator and that creator loved us and gave himself for us and he redeemed us by not corruptible things such as silver and gold, even though he was the wealthiest of the wealthy, he didn't redeem us with things like that, but he redeemed us with something that he had only the only thing he had a limited supply of. The only thing that God could not make more of and that was Christ's precious blood. And upon the discovery of this truth, it ought to transform you. I mean, when you look at what Christ has done, it ought to do something in you. And the more we abide in Christ and we center our life with Christ's will for our lives, and we say, Christ, you are my all I am in you, and Lord, whatever you ask of me, I'll gladly do. As we align our lives with His will, we learn one very important truth. He has charged us to do certain things. Well, this is not in the sermon, but He has charged us to spread the gospel Amen. in this world. Amen. It's a commission. It was one of his final parting charges that we were to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't in the sermon, but like Dad said this morning, you get what you pay for, this is free. Uh, 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 I invited two different people to church yesterday. We, we went to uh, uh, outdoor knocking and, and me and Miss Vanessa and Miss, uh, Mr. Mark Castaneda. All right, Mark, that's how you said it this morning, and uh, we were out there, we were uh, uh, knocking on some, we're making some visits, and we just saw a house trailer there, and I said, hey, you know what, we're just going to pull in here, we're going to uh, just cold knock this door, we knocked on the door, ah, my name. and she said, where do you go to church again? And I showed her the picture on the back of the track, and she said, you know, my, my kids go there. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. That's good. We'd love to have you sometime if you ever get a chance. I went down, got my haircut yesterday at Ultra Cuts. That place got it going on. $13.95 for a haircut. Man, I tipped that lady big yesterday because that's cheap. Not necessarily they do a good job, but it's cheap. (laughs) But I was in there and I got to talking. She said, what do you do? And I said, I'm the pastor of Joshua Baptist Church said, which one is that? And I said, well, that's the big red brick one as you go into Joshua. Oh, yeah, the one on the left. Yeah, that's it. My grandchildren go to that church. And I said, praise the Lord, we'd love to have you sometime too. We got a whole new air-conditioned fleet, but did you know you are charged to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not enough to support Brian Cohn monthly to send him to do your job for you. Every person is in charge of the Great Commission. We're charged to live a certain way. We're charged to look a certain way. And this is the way we are to live. Notice in verse number 12. Put on therefore. Now that Christ is your all. Now that Christ is the all of your life. Put on therefore. Well, what are we to put on? These are the Savior's sweet substitutes. First of all, we are to put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies bowels of mercies. In ancient times, it was widely believed that deep feelings of uh, sincerity, deep feelings of uh, sympathy and concern originated in the pit of the stomach. You know why they believed this? See, we would we would say today, oh, my heart goes out for you. My, my heart goes out to you because I know what you're going through. But back then, it was believed that it originated from the lower parts of your belly. And that's why our, our text sounds the way it does tonight. And you know the reason for that is, have you ever gotten news that made you sick to your stomach for that person? I remember uh, just last week as I went into mom and dad's house, I don't watch the news much, uh, I, have, I don't have very much faith, so I can't watch very much news, but uh, uh, there we were sitting in front of the TV, and across the screen showed the horrendous activities that took place in Orlando uh, last week. The largest mass shooting in America. And I, I just, there watching the TV, I became ill. Not ill because of the people that were running out of the building. Don't mistake that. I was ill that somebody would think that life was so invaluable. I was ill that somebody thought it was somehow beneficial to steal people's lives from them. How somebody, regardless of where it was, I don't care where it was... If it had been in, in, in Korea, I would have felt the same way. It was sad to me to see someone go in and just so recklessly take people's lives. And as I sat there on the couch, I just looked at the TV and all I could say is, that's terrible. That's terrible. And I became nauseous for the activities that took place. Have you ever heard news like that? Chances are, if you were around on 9-11, 15 years ago, you remember that the awful feeling of sympathy and, and regret. That's what the Bible's talking about. Bowels of mercies. A deep and sincere uh, extension of the mercies of God. You see, the Greek word here in this passage, and uh, it really found all over the New Testament, is splechon. Uh You like that, but really you have to add the phlegm. I'm not lying, splachon, that's the way you say that Greek word. And this word is unique because it's mentioned several times throughout the Bible. For instance, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, when the Bible says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeing his brother in need, and shutting up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And that's true. I mean, how can you see somebody in need and, and not be moved to act? That's what the Bible's saying. And so this is the same word here. But it takes a unique transition when applied to Jesus Christ and the Gospels. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, I'll, 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 I'll kind of explain it to you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. You don't have to turn there. But every time this word is used in reference to Jesus Christ, it's not translated bowels, as it is in other parts of the New Testament. It is translated like this. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Matthew 14, verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. Matthew 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Matthew 20, verse 34, So Jesus had compassion on the two blind men and touched their eyes. Mark 1, verse 41, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth His hand, and touched the leper. Luke 7, verse 13, And when the Lord saw the widow, He had compassion on her. So, when it's applied to Jesus, the word is not translated bowels of anything. It's translated, He was moved with a compassion for that individual or that group of people. You say, well, how does that apply to me? Well, it applies several ways. Did you know that it is also, this word is the exact word used in three very unique parables. Now, what parables are these? Well, the first parable is that of the the, uh, uh, king who had a servant who was uh, unjust. In other words, the story goes like this. Jesus is teaching... And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A king who has a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. He goes to that servant and he says, man, it's time to pay up. And that servant says, well, I don't have anything to pay thee. Forgive, I pray thee. And the king is moved with compassion on his servant and forgives the debt. That same uh, servant goes to another man who owes him a little bit of money. And the Bible says instead of 10,000 talents, it's 100 pence, and, uh, uh, which is far less money. And the man puts his hands around his neck. That's what the Bible says. It uses very, very clear terminology. Puts his hand around his neck and says, you pay me what you owe me. And the man says, I don't have anything to pay you. I pray you'd forgive me of the debt. And the man says, no. And he casts the man into prison until he is able to pay. Well, the king hears word about this, and, and maybe you know the conclusion of the story, but basically the king comes back and he, and he, and he criticizes the man, and, he, and he, he, he points out the fact that he forgave, and yet he did not. And that king is a picture of Jesus Christ. The second parable that it is used in is that of the Good Samaritan. Y'all remember that story, right? The Bible says a certain man was on his way there to Jerusalem and and, uh, some thieves fell among him, uh, fell on him and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him there and they took everything he had. And the Bible says they left him there half dead. Well, the first fellow that happens on by is who? Do we remember the story? It's a priest. And the priest kind of walks on by there and he kind of, Uh, sidesteps the man. Probably he was going to preach somewhere because preaching is much more important than ministry in most situations. And the priest was on his way and he did not want to take time to help the man. Well, the next person, who was that? Do we remember? That was the Levite. the Levite's a religious man as well. He's uh, one of the select of God, and and there he was, and he came by, and he passed by on the other side, the Bible says. He didn't have time. He was maybe on his way to do something very important for God, but that was not the thing. The third man that comes by there, the Bible says, is a, a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans, in the Jews' eyes, would have been the worst of the worst. Remember the story where Jesus has to go through Samaria and his disciples are like, Lord, that is such a bad idea. We don't even like the Samaritans. That's, you're going to be criticized for associating with the Samaritans. Lord, that's not a good idea. And Jesus uses the Samaritan man. What does the Samaritan do? He goes there and he sees the man and he picks up the man. He binds up his wounds and and pours wine on them to to help them heal and and disinfect them. He puts them on his own animal there and he takes him to the innkeeper and he lays down there two pence and he says, you take care of him until I come back and anything that you uh, have to spend over what I've given you, I'll take care of it when I come back. And I believe, the Bible doesn't tell us, I believe he came back. You know why? Because that man is also a picture of Jesus Christ. You want to know the third parable that this word is used in relation to? It's that of the prodigal son. Oh, we all know that story. I don't even have to explain that one, but the prodigal son thinks that uh, it's time for him to leave the house. Maybe he got tired of dad's rules. I don't know, but it's time to leave. And that young man takes his living as the father divided it amongst his sons and And he took his living, and the Bible says he wasted it on riotous living. And there he was after a few little days. And you know what I've noticed? When you don't have anything, you don't have very many friends in those types of situations. This man, the only friend he had was the hogs that he was sharing supper with. And the Bible says as he sat there in the muck and mire of that hog pen, he said, the Bible uses this terminology, and he came to himself. The Bible says, he started to reason in his mind, how many of my father's hired servants have bread and to spare, and I sit here with these hogs, nasty and filthy, eating what I would never have looked at before. The Bible says that man reasons in his mind, I will arise and return to my father's house, and I will ask him if maybe he'll make me one of his hired servants. He returns, and the Bible says, the son was yet a great way far off. And the Father had compassion on him. It's the same word. It's movement, such a deep movement in your heart and in your bowels that you you begin to hurt for someone and that you begin to uh, feel the pain that they're feeling physically. So much of the pain that we feel when we hear bad news, it's, oh, your father died, I'm so sorry. And yet, we're never really affected by it until it's ours. That's not the type of bowels of mercies the Bible's talking about. It's saying being so close to the person there that you're speaking with that your heart and your body begin to become physically ill and they begin to hurt because you hurt for that person that hurts. All three of these men who were moved with compassion are New Testament types of Jesus Christ. And you know what the one thing they all have in common? They displayed unmerited favor on a person who was not necessarily deserving. Think about it. The king was owed a debt and he forgave the debt because the man asked for it. Think about it, uh, uh, the, the, the man there laying in the middle of the road, he didn't deserve to be helped, he, he was just there, and yet the man went out of his way and took of his own time and his own money, and he, he invested it in that man, and you think of the father. Could you imagine being the father in that story? How many of us dads would like to say, yeah, I would have been the first one to kill the fatted calf. I'd have been, I'd been there to kill somebody, I know that. But it probably would not have been the fatted calf as my son who spit in my face and as my son who who basically took all that I had worked hard for returns home and says, Dad, I know that I made a mistake, but would you just please forgive me? I'd have a hard time just forgiving. And yet that man displayed unmerited mercy on those people. You know what? Bowels of mercy is displaying mercy upon people who are not necessarily deserving of it. Isn't that what Christ did for us? Displayed favor to us when we were unlovable, when we were not the the most attractive, when we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, the Bible says. That is what Jesus did for us, and that is what Jesus asks you to do for Him. Take people who aren't necessarily the cleanest, who aren't necessarily the most sanctified, dignified, and and, and take those type of people and extend mercy their way. When things happen to them and when they get a little sidetracked and and when news comes back to you that they posted something on Facebook that wasn't necessarily Christian approved, when news comes back to you, you don't just sit in your high chair and say, I can't believe that person would do that. No, what, what our reaction ought to be is we ought to begin to hurt. We ought to begin to hurt a little bit inside as we see people struggling through this old wicked world. We ought to be sympathetic instead of judgmental in those times. You understand, man, there is one judge and you are not even close. So as we catch wind of somebody maybe going somewhere they shouldn't have gone or somebody maybe doing something they shouldn't have done or saying something they shouldn't have said, we don't just sit up in our high horse saying, well, I would never. You know what we do? Our bowels begin to move and they begin to display mercy and extend mercy to that person. Well, the first thing that we are to put on is we are to put on bowels of mercy. And then secondly, and we're done this evening, we are to put on, according to verse number 12, not only bowels of mercy, kindness. I read a quote, and it's just an extremely powerful quote. It touched me and affected me, and this is the quote: "My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness." You know who said that? The Dalai Lama. I mean, if, if one religion in this world ought to be kind, it ought not be some false religion devised of men. If any religion ought to be the genesis or the foundation of kindness, it ought to be ours. You know why? Because we have experienced kindness on a level that no other human being has ever experienced kindness. He says, oh, my religion's pretty simple. It's... Uh, My religion's kindness. I'm just kind to people. You know what I've learned about kindness? I've learned two things. Kindness must be exhibited to be effective. It must be exhibited to be effective. When God set up in heaven and He was trying to devise a way, if you'll give me the liberty here a little bit to to paint the picture. He set up in heaven and He tried to devise, how am I going to show my love for mankind? How am I going to let them know that I love them? I mean, I do love them, and yet they've, they've offended me and they've opposed my holiness. I can't be around sin. I can't look at sin. So how can I extend my kindness towards them? You know what he came up with? A man. Now, this is no ordinary man, mind you. It was the man Christ Jesus. It was God who took on the form of flesh and came to us and served us and extended to us Love like we had never known. And that's the kindness of our God towards us. You know the only time when God's kindness is not displayed in this world? When His men don't display the kindness. You see, God can't go to Lamar Sign Company and buy a billboard. Right? God doesn't have a blog. We all agree there? Unless you know, I would love to read it if He does, so just... I don't think he has an official verified Twitter account. So what does he do? Well, anytime God needs to display kindness to this world, you know what he does? He sticks with his original plan and he uses men. And kindness contained within your vessel does not let anybody know how kind you are. But more importantly, it does not let them know how kind your God is through you. Right, I have the kindest heart in the world. You know how many thank you notes I've wanted to write? I mean, I've been very sincere in the things that I would write. To this day, I have a post-it note in my phone saying, write choir letters. And I was going to write every single teenager who I saw in the choir morning. And that was about, oh, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Right Kindness that is not implemented is ineffective. Amen. But kindness that is displayed impacts people. Amen. And look, this is not the kindness. Kindness is not just a, a doing something nice for somebody. Kindness is surprising even the receiver of the magnitude of the kindness displayed. I remember in my Bible, one of the most beautiful stories of any kindness ever displayed is when King David, after taking the throne, decides to ask the question, are there any descendants of Saul's? Is there anybody who, who would be a, a, a descendant of Saul? And you know, this question had to catch his servants by surprise. Because in their mind, they're thinking, are you going to be like every other King David? The, I mean... Saul, if he has a descendant, rightfully that descendant holds the throne in some people's minds. Regardless of the decisions and the statements that Samuel made, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel would have been Saul's son. So David asks the question, is there anybody who is a descendant of Saul? And they have to go find one of Saul's old servants. And the servant kind of comes up and says this, well, Jonathan has a son. David says, okay, where is this? Where can I find this son? And, and the servant knows and gives the instructions there to David. David goes to get the son and the Bible tells us that Mephibosheth is actually crippled. Can you imagine the picture of the mighty king Saul and the, uh, the, the uh, his son Jonathan, a mighty man in war and valor, and then here's... uh, Jonathan's son, a weak, helpless individual. And now David extends an invitation to Mephibosheth to come to the palace there. And and, uh, 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 Mephibosheth comes and he bows down before David. And in the back of Mephibosheth's mind, you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, my life's over. I'm no threat to this man, and yet just because of just because of who my parents are and just because of the whole situation, I'm going to die right here. And David says, Mephibosheth, fear not. I want to extend kindness to you. I want to give you everything that Saul had when he was king. In fact, the servant who gave David the instructions on how to find Mephibosheth, you know what David says? Okay, I want you, your sons, and your servants to serve Mephibosheth. Before, Mephibosheth was just a problem to everybody else. I want y'all to till his land. I want y'all to work his land. But this is the great part. Don't miss this. And boy, this is good. This is just Bible. I love it. There he is. He says, I want y'all to work the land. And I want y'all to serve him because he can't help himself. I want y'all to work and I want you to gather. But you're not gathering food for him. You're gathering food for you. Well, why is that? because he will never take a bite of food that is not from my own table. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Mephibosheth had to be sitting there just looking up at King David. Here I am. I should should be dead. You should kill me. It just seems logical. It should be the right thing to do. And David says, I'm just trying to extend a little kindness to you. And this is what Mephibosheth had to say. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant? That thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am. You know what that word dead dog is there? That is not a dog that is already dead. That is a dog who is rabid who should become dead. Mephibosheth recognized the threat that he was to David. And he looked at David and says, why are you doing this for me? Why would you just be so kind? I don't understand. I should be dead and you're making me a seat at your own table. You're giving me land. You're giving me servants. I don't understand. That's kindness. You know what kindness is? When it surprises the receiver of it. Kindness is not saying, brother, I'm praying for you. No, everybody expects that. We're Christians. Kindness is going out of your way to help that person. Kindness is that person saying, oh, I can't accept this. And you say, you better, son. That's kindness. That's the kindness that Jesus extended. You know what, Jesus? Truthfully, Jesus would have been merciful to give us 70 years here on this earth of pleasure and then send us to hell. That would have been kind. I mean, because frankly, we were in sin in our mother's womb. We deserved hell when we were conceived. Kindness would have been allowing us a 70-year sabbatical here on earth, and then sending us to hell. But His kindness was that He would come all the way from Calvary do something that we ourselves could not do, and then offer us a place at His own table in heaven for no apparent reason, the just loved the unjust, the lovely loved the unlovable. Man, Jesus Christ died for you. That's kindness. That's kindness unexpected. It's kindness undeserved. Man, and so often... We sit there and they say, oh, I'm a pretty kind person. No, no, kindness is only effective when it is implemented in everyday life. Secondly, and I want you to see this and we're done. Kindness needs to be emphasized to be established. Kindness needs to be emphasized to be established. Have you ever heard this phrase? The key to learning is what? Repetition. Repetition helps us build habits. It helps us form structure in our life. In fact, repetition in a golf swing helps you build muscle memory. Repetition in a jump shot helps you become familiar with where your elbow needs to be and where your hands need to be on the ball. It builds repetition. The key to learning is repetition. The Bible teaches us, and you can take your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4 while I'm talking. Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible tells us uh, uh, that the That we are to be kind one to another, in fact, in Ephesians chapter four verse thirty two it uses these words exactly ephesians four verse thirty two and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted forgiving one another, even as God for christ's sake. Forgiving you. Uh, now, that's a pretty uh, poignant verse there. Be kind, just be kind. Now I want you to notice this in uh, uh, verse 29 uh, there in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Verse 32. And just be kind one to another. Now I was curious. Was Paul noticing a real problem in this church? That that one of the last chapters in the book... He takes a whole half chapter, essentially, to tell them to just be kind. I thought, maybe maybe Ephesus was a little bit more like our church than I thought. Maybe they were just having trouble being friendly. Maybe they were having trouble extending the right hand of fellowship. I don't know. Take your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the answer. Well, was the church of Ephesus just a real unfriendly church? I mean, did they just struggle to get along? Did they, I mean... Maybe there was a little confrontation, some conflict there that they couldn't get over. I mean, he took a whole half chapter to just say, be kind. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to notice in verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Notice this. And what's the next few words there? Love unto all the saints. Uh, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, I, I kind of thought, man, maybe the church at Ephesus is just a real unfriendly place. Maybe, maybe people would go in, maybe the visitors walked into that church and nobody would shake their hand. Maybe, maybe everybody just hated handshaking time, I don't know. And maybe they just hated each other. No, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, he actually commends them for their love to the saints. He says, man, you're doing a great job. You love everybody, even the unlovable. You love them. Then why, just a few chapters later, does he say, you just got to be kind. Don't, don't be bad people. Don't be, you know why? Because kindness is not something you ever conquer. In you, you are depossessed to automatically be unkind. For some reason or another, when people say stupid things, you know what I want to say? Well, that was stupid. In most cases, they probably deserve it. Every Facebook post I've ever read in my life, you know what I wanted to say? Well, that was stupid. Unless it's scripture. That's not. No, no. Right? We are prepossessed to be unkind. So, as we are told to be kind one to another, it's not just something that we can focus on one day and kind of shelf the next. Right? It's not that when we go out to eat with preacher, we're kinder to the waitress at that table than we would be if it was just us and our family. Yep. Kindness is a day-to-day exercise. Yeah. It's something that we have to be cognizant of. And the very first moment we start off and say, Oh, yeah, well, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> I mean, we have to understand, you may say in your heart of hearts, well, I'm a pretty kind person. You can be kinder. You can be prepossessed to love the Lord and through that love extend His love to all. But what we think is, oh, we've got it down. Well, the church at Ephesus had it down. And just a few short chapters later, there Paul is reinforcing the fact that they could be kind one to another. Don't ever think that you've arrived in matters of the Bible, and especially matters like kindness. I remember uh, when I was working at a horse ranch when I was about twelve years old. The first summer I worked for Brother Purcelli, I was terrible. I was just in his way all the time, to be frank with you. I didn't know how to saddle the horses and, and the horses were taller than I was, so Throwing the saddle up on the horse really, you know what I did most of the time? The stirrup hit the horse right there in the flank, and he just got angry at me, and Jimmy's back there. Oh goodness, Andrew. I was really in the way. Well, at 13 I worked for him again, and at 14 I worked for him again. And after those three summers of working for Brother Purcelli, I say this in humility. I was really good at saddling and unsaddling horses. In fact. I began to race myself. I would get a timer there. And see, my, my job basically was to saddle the horse, wash the horse after he was done. Well, let me get the order right, because that sounds odd. Saddle the horse, ride the horse, give the horse to Brother Jimmy, get the horse back from Brother Jimmy, unsaddle the horse and wash the horse and put him back in his stall. And I did that a lot, probably about 12 times every night. And so I, I, towards the end of that last summer, I started timing myself. And I'm not kidding you. I learned the body rhythms and movements to unsaddling a horse as fast as you can possibly can. And here's the truth. Brother Jimmy likes his saddles a certain way. So that the next person that goes to use the saddle doesn't have to deal with the dumb stuff you did to it. So there was a very specific way he taught me to put the saddles up. So I would sit there and I'd say, ready, set. I'd undo the cinch there, and I'd wrap the cinch. I mean, this was fluid. I'm talking about, this was like watching, I don't know, Apollo Ono as he speed skates. Do you all know who that is? It was beautiful. It was wonderful. There I was, and then I'd do the back cinch there. I'd undo the breast collar. I'd go around to the front there, and I'd grab all three, the back cinch, the front cinch, and the breast collar. i put all three of their buckles together, and i put them on the same little tab there on the saddle. I'd take the tab off, and the horse at this time is like going, what is going on? It was so confused, but it really wasn't that bad until I started washing the horse, right? There's certain places on a horse that lather up. Anywhere there's friction. There's certain places that get lathered. Especially when they're out there in the dirt. They're cutting those cows. And and so there's certain places that you just have to wash off. And I was doing it fast. (laughs) This horse had a water hose between its back hind legs before it could even do anything. I was sitting there spraying these guys. I'd go side, 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 and I'd make it all go, and then I'd go to the back side and I'd just stick that water hose right up there in between, squirt it up, squirt it down, grab the little water scraper thing, and I'd whoop, 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 and there I was. It took me about three minutes to get one unsaddled, washed, and put back in the stall. You say, there's no way. I gotta lie a little bit. This is preaching, right? But I will say I got good at it. And the truth is, when you practice something over and over, you get better at it. It's just truth. I had a a person a while back in my life say this, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect performance, right? The more you work, the more you learn, the more you study, the more you put into effect what you have learned, that builds repetition and that builds skill. The reason we as Christians cannot just display kindness in isolated events is because we're never learning to display kindness like our Savior did. Christ was as equally kind to the Pharisees as He was to the sinful woman. He sat around tables with publicans and sinners, and He sat around table with the hierarchy of the religion of the day, and yet Christ was always kind. Would you say that in your life you display kindness each and every day? In every situation when your waitress gets the no ice thing wrong, do you display kindness? When people upset you, you know, like when the train blocks you off right before you're on your way to church and you got a late start to church anyway, like, I don't know, tonight when the church hit the tracks at 622, When the train hit the tracks, at 622 and I'm on my way to church. Does that get you off balance? Do you snap at your wife when she doesn't get your dinner the proper heat? Kindness. Just be kind. Kindness is exactly what you think it is. You know what the Greek word for kindness is? Kindness. Kindness. You know what the Hebrew word is? I would assume it's kindness. You don't need to look deeper into the archaic languages. Kindness is just shedding Christ's love on people all around you, whether or not they deserve it.